Okay, if you would, turn your Bibles to John chapter 15 this morning. Again, as we continue in uh, this section of Scripture where Jesus is sharing in-depth truths and in-depth things uh, concerning their ongoing, their coming up ministry, uh, sharing truths about uh, what they need uh, to prepare them to be the apostles of Jesus Christ. Also, you got to remember, this is a very intense time. Jesus has shared with them that he's fixing to die. He, he, he talked about his body being the bread and his, and his blood being the blood of the new covenant that's coming upon them, the eternal covenant. And he's talking about preparing them, them for his uh, upcoming crucifixion. They're going to celebrate the Passover, and whether they understand yet or not that He is the Passover Lamb that's fixing to die is not clear, but still they understand this is a very unique thing that's going on, and His talking about leaving them, His talking about dying, His talking about all the things that's going on, is, is if you can just imagine being in their position, I mean they've, they've been with Christ for three years, seeing all that He's done, hearing all that He's said, and now they're at this time of the Last Supper. They're out there in the early evening hours of Thursday evening, uh, probably at the Mount of Olives uh, location right now. And he's sharing, them, sharing with them these things that they're confused about a lot of this stuff. They don't understand a lot that's going on, but they understand the intensity of the hour. And just the whole thing that's going on, if you can just kind of picture that, this is, this is outdoors. This is in the evening. This is... Uh, just prior to his being arrested and, and being put on trial and all that's going to come about. But they're involved in all that in a, in a moment of time that this is going on. This is not just some uh, abstract teaching that we're going through. This really occurred in a real location at a real time uh, just outside Jerusalem. And so just kind of keep that in mind. And one thing we, we, we were sharing last week in chapter 14 and he said, he said the last thing is, in verse 28, You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to my Father and the Father is greater than I. What he meant by that, if you truly understood all that is implied in that, and you embrace and you love everything about the, the Father's will and what's being accomplished through this unique time in history, this is the most important event in all of human history, is the coming of Jesus Christ as the God-man to take our place on the cross and to be our representative before God so that we can be given the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that we have an eternity with God forever and ever. This is the most important event in all. And so he's, what he's saying is if you understand all that's implied and all that is involved in what is going on at this very hour, at this very time in history, the greatest moment in all human history, if you understand that, you will embrace and love what's happening even if you don't want to see me die and suffer. But you would embrace that. So that's what he's talking. So he's talking about his going away. He's talking about his, his upcoming death and his, his departure back to heaven. And so he's, 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 he's giving them truths that once the Holy Spirit indwells them at Pentecost, they will remember all the things he said, and then it will make sense to them, and they will fully embrace it as his apostles laying the foundation for the church. Any questions about that? Any, any thoughts or questions you've got about what we've covered so far at this, this unique time that Jesus is preparing his disciples to go through with him 
and then be there to lay the foundation for the church. Anyone? I wonder if Jesus ever spoke to them plainly. Well, he was talking about this body in the temple. It's just, you know, I'm, just gonna, I'm gonna die. Well, he, he, I think he said that pretty plainly in, in many cases. And uh, just like when he told Peter that, that Peter, I mean, when Peter said, uh, I, won't, I won't let that happen. And then Peter, Peter knew what he was talking about. He said, I'm not going to let that happen. And he said, get behind me, Satan. So anyway, but <clears throat> one other thing that's going on, that's what I'm going to talk about before we get into chapter 15. Today we're, we're trying to get into chapter 15 and talk about what it means to, <clears throat> to abide in Christ. But one other, one other thing he said that we didn't get to last week, in verse 29 through 30, 31, he said, And now I have told you before it comes to pass that when it comes to pass you may believe I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me but that the world may know that I love the Father and as the Father gave my comm- me commandment, even so I do. So again, he's talking about, <clears throat> he's talking about his death on the cross. And all of the implications of that. Now, when he says that I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, who's he talking about? Talking about Satan. Satan is the ruler of this world. You remember back at the at the time of the Lord's Supper when uh, he was talking about they were he was talking about who was going to uh, betray him, and he had dipped the morsel in, in verse twenty six of chapter thirteen. And he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. And Jesus therefore said to him, what you do, do quickly. You've got to understand that there is an intense battle going on right now between good and evil, between God and Satan. This battle that started back in the garden, that it, well, it started back before that when Satan tried to take over, tried to rise up to be like God before the, the six-day creation when Satan was the anointed cherub and he desired to be above God or to be equal with God. And then he was, he was uh, judged and he was uh, put under the curse of sin. And then, and then as soon as God created Adam and Eve in the garden, here comes the serpent, the Satan, to try to destroy what God was doing in the creation of Adam and Eve and human history. And ever since then, Satan has been trying to undo or try to destroy what God is trying to accomplish. He tried to uh, corrupt the human race through the bringing down of fallen angels and interacting with man in Genesis chapter 6 to try to corrupt the human race because he wanted to stop the seed that was promised that would come. This Jesus, when, when Herod, uh, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem and the wise men came looking for the king of Israel he had Herod kill all of the two-year-old babies to try to destroy this one that was coming to be the king. When Jesus was pronounced as the Son of God uh, at his, after his baptism and was taken into the wilderness to be uh, uh, tempted by Satan, he tried to get Jesus to, to, to obey him or to, to compromise or to sin like Adam did. So the second Adam would be compromised and this wouldn't go forward. So he's always trying to undo what God has promised and purposed to do. And now you have this intensity of this battle of the ages of Satan against God in his attempt to destroy this this person, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. 
And so this, this whole, this whole ad- atmosphere of the betrayal of Jesus Christ and of the trial of Jesus Christ and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is Satan trying to destroy what God is trying to do. So whether he's deceiving the, the Jews to call, to call out for Jesus to be crucified coming up, uh, whether he's, he's empowering the, the kingdoms of this world, the Roman Empire, the, the Pontius Pilots and the, and the rulers of this world to have him put to death. So all this, is, is, all this is going on. But Jesus makes it clear to his apostles when he says this, I have come and I've told you before it comes to pass that when it comes to pass you may believe. That you may believe what? When, when Jesus dies on the cross and then he is raised from the dead, that they may understand and believe that all of this was designed by God, for ordained by God for the purpose of bringing them to eternity with Christ. And when he says that, I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of this world is coming. The ruler of this world is coming for him. To have him killed, to have him crucified. But then he says he has nothing in me. Now what does that mean? What does it mean he has nothing in me? Whatever Satan desires to accomplish in having me crucified will not have any thwarting of what God has purposed for Jesus to do. There, Jesus did not succumb to Satan. Jesus did not become a, a sinful second Adam. And even though he is dying on the cross, it's for the purpose of God, and Satan will not win. Satan's goal will not be accomplished. God's purpose will be accomplished. And you will understand that even though it looks bad, when they take him away and they crucify him and they put crowns of thorns on him and they humiliate him and he goes to the cross, all these things they're going to see. Do not, do not misunderstand that. You'll come to understand and understand and believe that this was God's ordained purpose being accomplished using Satan and the kingdoms of this world to accomplish God's means. And that's why when Peter is in Acts chapter Two, when he first starts out his, his sermon there, he talks about this act of men being foreordained of God. He said, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered up to be crucified, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed him to the cross. You accomplish what Satan wants you to accomplish as Jews, having him to be crucified, but it was God's predetermined plan that was being carried out by your sinful acts. And so for them, when he's talking to them, he says, the ruler of this world is coming, but whatever he desires to do to me, it will end up being God's purpose being fulfilled exactly like God purposed it to be fulfilled. So when they understand that, and at Pentecost they did, and Peter stood up boldly and declared that, that this was an act of Satan, this was an act of mankind that was following Satan, but it was the predetermined plan of God to accomplish His perfect will to have the result that all those whom God has chosen before, before the foundation of the world would be brought into a standing with God of perfect righteousness and their sins forgiven because of the, of the act of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of the world, the, the Lamb of God who died for the sins of those whom God chose. 
So you see that. This is a very intense time. It's a very intense time when Satan is going to be all, doing all he can to destroy the word Satan. Now he doesn't stop here. As we'll see as we get into the studies of, of, of the, the last days. Every time that God is doing something in a tremendous way, a miraculous way on earth, the, the acts of demonic activity increase greatly. So the closer we get to the second advent of Christ, you're going to see greater and greater and, and, and demonic activity, lawlessness and stuff. So when we're approaching the time of the, the Antichrist being empowered, especially in the tribulation time when the second part of the tribulation when Satan is cast down to the earth and you have Satan and you have the, the beast or the Antichrist and you have the false prophet acting as the unholy trinity ruling this world for, for 42 months, the last three and a half years of the tribulation. When you see all that happening, it's going to be greatly intensity of the, of the lawless deeds, the evil deeds of Satan perpetuating upon the earth as part of the judgment of God against humanity because of their sin. So you see that, and that's what's happening here when Jesus makes this comment about the ruler of this world. The ruler of this world is Satan. Because God had created Adam to be the ruler of this world, and Adam succumbed to Satan, and Satan took over the rulership of this world. And so he, under the allowance of God, is the ruler of this world. Any questions? Satan knew that he was the son of God. But he also knew that he would resurrect I don't know exactly all that Satan knows because he's fallen. Uh, he is a very, uh, people need to be, understand one thing. Satan is a very powerful being, much more powerful than any of us, anyone. And so people that say, you know, we need to go and bind Satan, we need to do all these things to Satan, they don't understand. Uh, you need to be um, standing firm on the conviction of Lord Jesus Christ and Satan will not have a sway in your life if you stand firm. But in nowhere are we supposed to bring a railing accusation against Satan or any of his kingdom. We're not in a position to be uh, having power over Satan. We're to stand firm on the Word of God and then let God take care of Satan and he will flee from us as long as we're standing in the Word of God and standing in righteousness. But do not get involved in trying to get into the occult and trying to deal with Satan yourselves. That's not a good place to be. That's not what we're called to do. Okay, so uh, First Corinthians 2, 8, Apostle Paul talks there about if the rulers of this world have known they will not have crucified the Lord of glory. Is that related to yes. Satan? Yes. But the rulers of this world are being duped by Satan to, to accomplish his will. So, but again, even when Paul's talking about our our ministry in the church, and he talks about our enemy or our adversary is not people, it is the people that are controlled by demons and Satan. That's why he says in chapter 6 of Ephesians about our warfare, and he says very clearly that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, our struggle is not against people that are being controlled by Satan. So it would be the same thing with the people that are putting Jesus to death on the cross. Our struggle is not against them. Even though they are being used of Satan to do his bidding, our struggle is not against them. Our struggle is against the principalities and powers of the air that are behind them. And so that's what he's saying is our struggle is against the evil forces of this world which are, that are embodied in Satan and his demons. And so that's what he's saying here, that the ruler of this world is coming 
He's coming to be involved in putting Jesus to death and humiliating Jesus to the extent that he did. But when Jesus said he has nothing in me, it means he has no claim against me because I am holy and righteous. And even though he has the authority as the ruler of this world to do what he's going to do, because God has ordained it to be that way, it doesn't mean that he's going to accomplish what he chooses to accomplish because God's purpose will be done. And they will understand that later, but not now. Because what happens when he gets arrested and when he, he's put on trial, they flee and they're scared. They don't know what's happening. They don't know what's going on. But later on, when they're filled with the Spirit of God and indwell, they will understand. Okay, so we get to chapter 15. And we're talking about this passage in chapter 15 where he continues to, to prepare them for their ministry later on as the apostles of Jesus Christ. So let's start out with verses 1 through 11. And uh, that's probably all we'll get to today. Verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Okay, so here he talk, he's talking to, again, his disciples in the same setting. He's, he's preparing to... Uh, leave them, and he's going. To, he's preparing to leave them to be in charge of laying the foundation for the church, and to become the apostles of Jesus Christ. And so that's his preparation for these men that are going to be appointed as apostles. And so he's preparing them at this time. He's giving them instruction and information that they will understand later and be able to use. So first thing he says is, "I am the true vine." This is his last statement that he makes in John about the I am statements. You know, we went through all of those. I think there were seven of them. Uh, I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the, the good shepherd. All these I am statements saying I am God, and this is my role as God in this way. And here he says I am the true vine. Now, when he says I am the true vine, what does he mean by that? What does the vine represent here when he says I am the true vine? Well, the vine is life, and uh, it's life to everything. To it, so I think it comes from the okay, so you have to be careful in, the, in different contexts of different things it means. In Romans chapter 11, when he says that the, the natural branches were, were growing out of the rich root of the olive tree, that's not the same thing as the true vine here. The rich root of the olive tree represents the truth of God that brings about salvation, and these natural branches were to be used of God as His messengers to give the truth of God to the world. And so when He cut those branches off, it wasn't people that were saved that lost their salvation. It was people that were used of God to be His representatives that lost that position of being God's representatives and God's witnesses. And so He grafted in Gentiles to do the same work. So in that analogy in Romans chapter 11, 
the rich fruit of the olive tree is not the same thing as the true vine here. Okay? Here, the true vine means the, true, the truth of eternal life. The, I am eternal life. And there's no life or righteousness that comes about apart from me. And so when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he means I am the only means, the only way of salvation. I'm the only way of eternal life. I'm the only way to the Father. There's no other name other than the name of Jesus by which you may have salvation, have forgiveness of sins, have a relationship with the Father. So when he says, I am the true vine here, he's talking about I am the true source of a righteous standing with God, a life with God that is eternal in its basis. Without me, there is no life. So that's what he's talking about here. You must be in me. You must be in me as far as abiding in me and having my righteousness and my life, or you have no righteousness and you have no life that will be able to be with God forever. So that's what he's saying. Now when he, when he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Now when he says my father is the vine dresser, he's talking about God. So he, in a lot of ways, it's, it gets confusing when you're talking about Jesus and he's talking about I, I did this, and then my father does this, or I am this. I, Jesus is always referring to his humanity, his, his incarnation, when he's talking about himself and the way he talks about himself, and then he compares that to my father. My father's will, I will accomplish my father's will. Well, when he's saying I'm, I will accomplish my father's will, my father's will is his will as the word, as part of the deity, the same as it's the father's will and the Holy Spirit's will. You cannot separate those two. So when Jesus is on earth, he is a God-man. He is representing himself as the Son of Man, as his, as his humanity. But when he refers to the Father, he's referring to the Godhead. He's referring to deity. So here when he says that my Father is the vine dresser, who is the one that, that keeps us, prunes us, exhorts us, and, and convicts us? Holy Spirit. So here Jesus is doing that same work with disciples, but he's going to say that God will, pru will prune you, God will correct you, God will grow you through the Holy Spirit's power, through the purpose of the, the Father, through the uh, connection with the Son. All these, the Godhead is always involved in all aspects of the, the work of the deity. Do you understand that? So when he says, my Father is the vine, the vine dresser, it's not just the Father that's involved in, in discipline and correction. It's the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus Christ. It's the, it's the entirety of the Godhead. Okay. So he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Now, when he says every branch in me, he's not talking about those who are born again. He's talking about those who are associated with me. Now, was Judas born again? No. But he was associated as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So he was chosen to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, even though Jesus knew that he was a devil. That's what he says in chapter 6 of John when he says uh, in verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, saying, Lord, whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I, not, I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? So Judas was chosen of Jesus to be one of his disciples, but he was not born of God. He was not in Christ as far as having salvation in Christ. He was associated with Christ as one of his disciples. 
So here in John chapter 15, when he's talking about the true vine and the branches that are true branches, here he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit is an apostate branch, is a false branch, is not a true branch. So he's not talking about people that were saved that lose their salvation and are cut off and thrown away. He's talking about people that were associated with Christianity, associated with Christ, associated with the message of Jesus Christ, but yet are not part of being abiding in the fruit or being abiding in the vine from the sense of not having the eternal life in them that comes through Jesus Christ. And that's what uh, 1 John is talking about in 1 John chapter 2 when he talks about those that were connected but not born again. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, he says, The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. The one who does the will of God. Then he says, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen from this. We know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, you all know. So here he's talking about the difference between those who are associated with the church, associated with Christ, have the name of Christianity, but are not truly born of God. And they will go away. They will not persevere. They will not be preserved to the end because they do not have a true relationship with Jesus Christ. So here, just make sure you understand that he's not talking about people that were saved and then lost their salvation or, 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 or cast away. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the world which I have spoken to you. Okay, so here he talks about the pruning process is not adding to your salvation. Make sure you understand that. Your sanctification does not add any, anything to your eternal salvation. Does that make sense? Just like when he was doing the Lord's Supper and he washed their feet and Peter said, wash me all over. And he said, Peter, you are clean. You are forgiven. Your sins have been done away with. But as you're walking through this world, you get fleshly and you get dirty and you need to have your life sanctified. You need to have your feet washed. You need to be cleansed from your sin of daily activities but it has nothing to do with your eternal forgiveness of sin that gives you a place in heaven. In other words, when you're born again, you have God's nature within you. You're born again with God's nature in you, and that nature that comes from God is perfect and holy. And the moment that you die, you are immediately in the presence of God, perfect and holy, because that nature that God has granted you at the new birth is perfect and holy. So all you need to do as you go through this life is to ask forgiveness, ask for cleansing, ask for you repent of the daily things you do in the flesh that doesn't have anything to do with your perfect standing before God, doesn't have anything to do with your perfect nature that God has granted you. It has to do with you succumbing to the flesh and needing those things to be sanctified. So here when he's talking about pruning, he is not talking about improving your salvation or your standing with God. He's talking about sanctifying you growing you so that you can be used as a vessel to be empowered by the Spirit of God to do the works of God during this life has nothing to do with what's coming up after you leave this life. 
You understand that? So the pruning process is to make you able to bear more fruit. When you prune a fruit tree, you're pruning it so that it will have more buds. It will have more life. It will have more fruit produced. And that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about taking away the things of your flesh or the things of this life that would hinder you from being available for God to use in the way that he desires to use you. So everyone that is born of God, everyone that is a true believer in this age that's coming that Paul, that Jesus is talking about in the church age that's going to be filled with the Spirit of God, that's going to be indwelled with the Spirit of God, that's going to be gifted with the Spirit of God, every one of you that is going to be a part of that, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God and the Father are desiring to sanctify you, to clean you up, to improve you, to grow you in your, in your understanding. It's like Paul said in chapter 12, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may be able to live out or prove out the will of God in you. In other words, God will be able to use you in the way He would desire to use you because you're changing the way you think about things, you're growing in your walk with the Lord, and you're walking in the Spirit. And as you walk in the Spirit, He produces through you the fruit of the Spirit. And He produces through you the empowering of the Spirit to do the works of God. And all these things have to be done by people that are available to be used of God. And the way you're available to be used of God is by having your sins forgiven or cleansed on a daily basis, having your sins acknowledged so that you can be filled with the Spirit. The way you're filled with the Spirit is to repent of sin. Flesh is what keeps you from being filled with the Spirit. The Spirit desires to control you, to fill you, to use you in the way He has purposed to use you. And the only thing that hinders that is your flesh and your sin. And so that has to be cleaned up. And that's what he's talking about here. Any questions? Okay. Okay, so you're clean already because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. In other words, you're being filled with my presence through the Holy Spirit. You're being born of my spirit in the regeneration you having the nature of God in you, which is very important for you to understand as we go through this. Everything that is worthy of praise and worship and worthy of acceptance to God has to come out of that new nature that God has given you. It cannot come out of your flesh. You can do good things in the flesh according to the world, but you cannot do things that will be rewarded or accepted by God through your flesh. It has to come through your new nature that is by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And so only the things that flow out of that nature. Now, what is included in that nature is the desire for holiness, the love of God that is from the nature of God. All those things have to be the motivation of your heart that produces anything that is worthwhile for God. And so when he's talking about abiding, he's talking about abiding in the sense of living out of the nature that's been granted you in the new birth. And with that nature that is granted you with the new birth is the knowledge of God the ability to know God, the ability to worship God, the ability to love God and have that devotion for God and the things of God. And so everything that comes out of that nature that God has granted you that is abiding in Jesus Christ because it's abiding in the same nature of God, all of that that comes out of that new nature is the right motivation. Everything that you do has to be motivated by that heart that's been changed by God so that it is a pure heart. So when you're working the things that will bring God glory and be worshiping God, it has to flow out of that new nature. It cannot flow from your flesh. 
You can't have a fleshly desire to do the things of God so that you can be praised or that you can be, feel a sense of accomplishment. It has to flow from a motivation of the heart that is pure and right. It comes from a heart that's been changed by God. So when he's talking about that, you cannot bear fruit that is acceptable by God unless it flows out of the nature that God has granted you and it flows through the power of the Holy Spirit who has gifted you. So when he's talking about going to the judgment seat of Christ and we're talking about the rewards that you're going to receive the judgment seat of Christ, what he's talking about is when you go to the judgment seat of Christ, you're not going to be judged for sin because your sins are already judged on the cross. So nothing at the judgment seat of Christ is about sin. It's about what the Spirit of God produced through you or what works you did as a believer in Christ, as a part of the body of Christ, doing the work of Christ during this age. Every one of us is gifted by the Holy Spirit. Every one of us has a manifestation of the Holy Spirit to do the things the Spirit of God desires to use us to do and to accomplish. And at the judgment seat of Christ, it will be judged everything that was produced through you. So you taught a Sunday school class. So you gave a gift of mercy. So you gave a financial gift. So you helped someone in need. All those things are part of the works that the Spirit of God is going to do through the church. But if you did that in the flesh... You will not be rewarded for that. It's not, it's not about sin. It's about what you accomplish or what you're, you're striving to accomplish. So the motivation that you did what you did and the means by which the Spirit of God empowered you to do what you did would be what will be rewarded. So God is going to reward you for what He produced through you. And so really the only reason that you're being rewarded at all is because you made yourself a clean vessel. You made yourself a pruned vessel branch you made yourself available for god to use you to pour his stuff through to accomplish his means and his work through you and then he's going to reward you for what he did in you that makes sense he's not going to reward you for what you did in your own ability in your own flesh it may have been a good thing in your mind but god is not going to reward you for something that you did in the flesh he's going to only going to reward you for what is accomplished through abiding in him and that's why you cannot accomplish the work of God without abiding in Christ. It has to flow from God, through the Spirit of God, into you and through you as a vessel, not as a part of who you are in your flesh. Hey, break God. That makes sense. Verse 5 says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and they cast them into the fire and they are burned. Again, this is not the judgment seat of Christ. This is the judgment of who is righteous and who is not righteous. Those that are not righteous, the, the apostate branches or the branches that are not true branches, will appear at the great white throne judgment, and there their sins will be judged. Because at the great white throne judgment is this judgment only of the unbelieving, of those that are lost, that have never had their sins forgiven. And so they will give an account before God of every act that they've ever done. And the books of their life will be opened and there will be records of every sin and every thought and every word and every deed that they have done that was a sinful deed and sinful act. They will be judged accordingly and they will be cast in the lake of fire. And the, the, the degrees of punishment in the lake of fire will differ depending on what, is, what you did sin-wise. Because God is a just God and He will justly reward or pay you back for all the sins that you accomplished as an unbeliever. Jay. Before the Father does any pruning to the vine, 
who's representative of all the branches? Is it all of, all of the world or all that have heard the gospel? The only ones that are bearing fruit are the ones that are being pruned. The ones that are not bearing fruit, he does not prune because they're worthless. He only prunes the branches that are bearing fruit. So therefore, there is only the, the correction and the disciplining and the, the uh, sanctifying of true branches, not of false branches. Right, but they're still part of the vine. No. They're not abiding in him. They're, they're associated with Christianity, with Christ, but they're not abiding. They're not, they don't have a connection to the, the vine itself as far as life from the vine. That's why they're not bearing any fruit, because they have no connection to the life that comes through the vine. They're a dead branch that has not been brought to life. And so just because they claim to be a follower of Christ, they claim to be a part of Christianity, they're not truly a part because they have no life in them. If they had life in them, they would be bearing fruit. But they have heard the gospel. You have people that have never heard the gospel, but they would consider, consider them. They're not, they're, not, they're not associated with Christ. So they're still lost. They're still condemned. They're still part of this, this human world that is without faith or without... You cannot be saved apart from Christ. So whoever's going to be saved in this world has to be brought to faith in Jesus Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. And whatever means that happens through its, uh, whatever messenger or whatever means that the Spirit of God can bring faith to someone individual in the world, that has to come, that has to come by the Spirit of God bringing to them the understanding or the truth of the gospel so that it can be changed their heart and be born again. But here he's talking about these that are going to be associated with Christ or with the church. They're not true branches. They're false branches. They're not, they don't have life. The only the ones that have life and are bearing fruit are the ones he prunes to bear more fruit. That makes sense? Okay. Now, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and shall be done. Now, what does that mean? As long as you're a true believer, you can ask for anything. I think Dolly said that one according to my will, it will be done. You have to ask according to his will. It has to be the Holy Spirit interceding God for you. Well, what he's talking about is the work that he's going to accomplish through you as the branches going forward. And in that context, whatever the work is that God is going to accomplish, you ask that God empower you to do that work, and he will do that. It is not God never promises to bless you with financial blessings uh, or any other blessings for yourself to live in this world and to be blessed by it. It doesn't mean God doesn't give you those things. He said, put the kingdom of God first and he'll take care of all your needs. He'll take care of what you need in this world. So that's another promise. But here he's not talking about that. He's talking about it in the context. He's talking about accomplishing the will of God, accomplishing the things that he has purpose for you, accomplishing those things the Spirit of God is going to produce through you, and so as these apostles are getting ready to be the apostles, he's telling them that God will accomplish their desires because their desires will be in line with what they're, what they're appointed to be, and that is to lay the foundation for the church. And so whatever they have need of to accomplish that desire to lay the foundation of the church, it will be done. And so their desires is in line with the desire and the mission of what they're called and appointed to be. So just remember that in the context. Too many people will take Scripture out of context and try to say, uh, we can ask, we can have anything we want. Well, that's completely out of context of what the whole purpose of Scripture is and the, whole, the principles of Scripture laid out is not for that at all. God never does anything that you may consume it on your flesh and, and, and abide it that way. 
In verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, when we get into this idea of proving to be a disciple or proving to be that we're saved, what, 1 John goes into great length on that. You say that you've been born of God, prove it. I mean, how do you prove it? You prove it by having a heart desire to be righteous. You're not going to be free from sin in this world. But you cannot sin in your new nature. So you have to allow your flesh to control you to sin. Your new nature cannot sin. That's why he says, if you're born again, you can't sin. What is born of God cannot sin. Your flesh can sin. You can sin in your flesh, but you cannot sin in your new nature. And therefore, as you are walking with God, you have, if you've been born of God, you have a desire for righteousness. You can't be born of God without a desire to be holy and righteous. That comes with a nature. You cannot be born of God without a desire and a, a love for God. That comes with a nature. And if you don't love your fellow believers, how can you say you love God? Because God's love will love all those who are associated with God. You can't say that you've been born again if you don't have an inherent faith in Jesus Christ. Because that new nature that comes from God embraces God's theology, embraces God's gospel, embraces the truth about Jesus Christ being the Savior of the world. You cannot have a new nature and not believe in Jesus Christ. Because that new nature hears the gospel, hears the truth of God, and responds according to the nature of God that's in you. That's why faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That faith is an, a gift that comes with the nature. You cannot be born of God and say, I don't believe in Jesus. That's impossible. That would be like saying, Jesus the Son doesn't believe in the Father. That's impossible. They're one. You cannot have the nature of God and say, I don't believe in Jesus Christ. So anyone that denies Jesus Christ and says they're born of God is a liar. It's impossible. Because the nature of God is part in, is in line with the truth of God and the understanding of God and the gospel of Jesus. So if you've been born of God, you will always respond in faith to Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean you will always live out the true faith. It doesn't mean you won't sin in the flesh because we're weak and we have the flesh. But it does mean that you will always believe in Jesus Christ. Even in your sin, you will believe in Jesus Christ. And so when he says that, he says, you prove my disciples when you bear fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is the overwhelming and the overflowing truth of God that is expressed in your faith and in your works and in your heart and in your affections that come out of the nature that's been granted you in the new birth. And so therefore, that is true. You will always um, prove to be disciples if you're born of God. That doesn't mean you will always live like disciples, but you will have that proof in you that you are His disciples. And the proof is shown by the way that you obey His commandments. Verse 9, it says, Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love, these things I have spoken to you that, you're, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So, he's talking about this idea of to love God is to obey God. 
You can't have the love of God in you without the desire to be obedient to God. Go to 1 John again, chapter 3. If you read this Gospel of John and then you read the book of 1 John, you see the connection between the author, which is the same author for both, and you see how he interchanges these thoughts and these ideas that go uh, back and forth there. In 1 John chapter 3, in verse 21, it says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Now here, the whole book of 1 John is about real assurance. Okay? In fact, what he says in 1 John chapter 5, at the, at the end of the book, he says, um, I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. So the whole book of 1 John is about assurance, objective truth about the reality that you are born of God and you have eternal life. And so it gives you all these tests of what's true about someone that is born of God so that you may know with full confidence that you have eternal life. I mean, that's the, one of the biggest things that Christians need is assurance because so many people doubt whether they're truly saved or this or that. And so he wrote the book of 1 John so that you might know with confidence, with full assurance, that you are a child of God. And so that's what he's talking about here in chapter 3 of 1 John. He says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Now, why would your heart not condemn you? Because of the truth of the test that he's given you. If you, if you desire to be righteous in your heart. I'm not talking about you just don't want to get the consequences of sin or you don't want to get the consequences of doing stuff wrong. You really have a desire to be holy and right with God. You have a desire to, to be pure. I mean, the greatest thing, if you think about it, the greatest thing that will occur when you die or when the rapture takes place is that you will never have another evil dirty, sinful thought ever again in your eternal existence. You will be freed from this flesh and freed from anything that will cause you to be sorry. You will not have another moment where you will wish I hadn't said that, wish I hadn't done that, wish I had You will all, I mean, there's going to be, at the judgment of Christ, there may be a, a sense of if I had just been more available, I might have been more pleasing to God. But that will not be the same thing that we're talking about here. We're not, you will not have another thought or another thing that you have to repent of ever again. You will be perfectly clean and pure in all of your motivations, in all of your thoughts. The moment that you leave this flesh behind, you are fully a soul and a new body that will be perfect and right with God forever. Never have another thought or action that you feel bad about, that you feel ugly about, that you feel sinful about, that you regret. So, when it says our heart does not condemn us, if we are walking in the Spirit and we are truly desiring to be holy and righteous in our heart, and we do love God and we know from our heart that we love God, 
then we have an assurance based on the objective truth. The Bible says in 1 John, if you have been born of God, you have a heart that is like God, a nature that is from God that desires to be holy. If you evaluate yourself and know that your desire is not to do the things you do that are sinful, my flesh makes me want to do things that I don't want to do. When Paul said, I do the things I hate, what he's saying is, I've been born of God, and I have a desire to be holy, and then I find myself doing something that I hate that I did. That's because he is fighting, the, the flesh is fighting against the spirit, the flesh is fighting against the nature that's been given. So, but in 1 John, if you have this desire to be righteous, and it burdens you when you sin... If you have this desire to be with the people of God, to love God and to love the things of God, if you have this, this understanding and this faith that is in Jesus Christ alone and you, you know that, then objectively the Word of God says you are born of God if these things are true about you. And therefore you have confidence. And he says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask we receive Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. And this is the commandment that we, that this is the commandment, or this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. So to love one another comes from a heart of love. To believe in Jesus Christ comes from a heart that's been changed by God because before you were born again, you did not love Jesus Christ. You hated everything about God and God's work. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And we know by this that he who abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Okay, so when we're talking about abiding in Christ and letting Christ live through us, then that the, the living through us causes us to believe in Jesus Christ totally. Our trust and our confidence is in him, not in us. And with that comes this obedience to the commandment to love one another. And by, when that is true, that we obey His commandments and we love one another and we believe in Jesus Christ, we know that we are abiding in Him. And we prove to be His disciples and then His love is in us. These things I have spoken in you that, you're, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. And that's what 1 John starts out with in his epistle to give you confidence uh, that you have eternal life. He starts out in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we have beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also that you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write that our joy may be made complete. Now, he starts out by saying the things that I'm going to write, I'm writing that your joy may be made complete. He fin finishes up his book, his epistles, by saying these things I have written that you may know that you have eternal life. So what makes your joy complete? The relationship you have with God and the full assurance that you have that relationship with God. The only way you can have complete joy in this life is to know that you have a relationship with God that is for eternity and the only way that you know that you have that relationship 
for God, that's with, for eternity, is that you have the objective truths about what has transpired in your life by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The new birth causes you to obey God, to love God, to believe in Jesus Christ, and then the understanding that if these things are true about you, you have the confidence to know that you have been born of God, that you have your sins forgiven, and you have an eternity with God, and that is the only thing that makes your joy complete. You're going through this world, you have sorrow in this world, you have hardships in this world, but your joy is made complete with the understanding and the knowledge that I do have an eternal relationship with God because of the truth, the objective truth, that I have been born of God, and this is man manifested by a heart that's been changed by God. So you understand that? So Paul, so G Jesus is telling his disciples again the things that is going to be reiterated by John when he finishes the apostle, the gospel of John, and when he writes the, first, the, the epistles of John, he's conveying these truths that Jesus has given to them at this time when he's speaking to his disciples before they have true understanding because they have not been indwelled by the Spirit of God. So he starts out, and then he, then he finishes, and we'll, we'll pick this up next week. But he said, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that I lay down, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, the greatest manifestation, the greatest example of true love is what I'm fixing to do for you. I'm going to the cross for you. And although I am ordaining you and appointing you to be my bond servants, my bond slaves, as apostles, to do the work I command you, I'm calling you my friends because I'm laying my life down for you and you're my friends. And there's no greater example of love than what I'm fixing to do when I go to the cross. And when you understand this, then you'll be willing to lay your, down, your life down for others as martyrs as those who are laying their life down for the well-being of all those whom God is calling to be part of his eternal order, the church in this age. So, again, he is giving in-depth, intimate instruction to his disciples who are at a state where if you can put yourselves in their position in the dark out there at the Mount of Olives, knowing that he's fixing to go to the cross and die and trying to grasp all the things that he's saying without the ability to understand everything that's going on here. It's amazing to think that Jesus Christ is giving them these great truths at a time when he's fixing to die for them and be uh, crucified. 